But know this, you are not just safe in Jesus, safe from tyranny. He has loved you. He has fought for you on the cross. And he's fighting to deliver you from the tyranny of Satan and the gods of this nation. Uh, this morning, uh, before we jump into the sermon, um, yeah, I just, just wanted to share with you again, um, my, in this last month, I'm taking every opportunity I can to plead with you for your prayer and your support as we launch out. And so uh, that's, that slide up there are the ways that you can participate in and support the work. Uh, Frontier wants to be a church planting church. We don't just want to be a church where the pastors are interested in church planting, but the whole church gets involved in it. And this is how you, as a church, can get involved. You can pray for us because we need God's help as we go out. You can give. We have financial needs. You can give on the Frontier website. There is a byline there for Emmaus Church uh, for, in their giving page. And we, we need financial resources. And uh, you can also serve and be a part of our team, whether that's coming to serve for a short time or just actually going and committing to be like Theoden and his family coming alongside of us. So we need your help. And I just ask you guys to pray and see how God would lead you in supporting and being a part of this church plant. Um, so that's, that's my pitch to you this morning because I'm excited about what we are doing, going to be doing up in Ankeny. So this morning... We are in the book of Zephaniah. We are again in our second, uh, second sermon here through the book of Zephaniah. And this book, well, last week was heavy. It was very heavy. And uh, this week, not getting any lighter. Zephaniah is hardcore. And uh, chapter 2 um, is just as hardcore. Um, and... and as I have been thinking about this sermon series, well, just before I started preaching it, I watched the Marvel movie Endgame. Many of you have seen this, right? And there's Thanos in that movie. And the question that, came, that was, has been running in my mind ever since watching that movie a few weeks ago has been, is God just another Thanos? Is God just some other demanding, detached, heartless deity up there that's going to snap his fingers and just destroy everything carelessly? Is God just a heartless being that has some twisted and perverse sense of justice? When we read Zephaniah chapter 2, if you're not careful, you could think, oh, God and Thanos seem to have a lot in common. It can feel that way. And so this morning as we come to this text, I, I'm asking that question, is God just a tyrant like Thanos? Is God just a tyrant, just another tyrant leader taking his own dysfunction out on us lesser beings? And what I hope that we will see this morning in answer to that question is not just simply, no, it's God is not Thanos. What I hope to see is that God is not a tyrant but he's actually the deliverer from tyranny who puts us safe in the joy of Jesus. That's what I hope that we will see this morning. So stand with me for the reading of God's word and we'll read Zephaniah chapter 2. 
starting in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do, do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, and a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that, lived in, that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. You can be seated in God's presence. Heavenly Father, as we now come to this text, and we look upon yet another prophecy in the Old Testament that, man, it's heavy, making these threats against all these nations. And in our minds, Lord, in our, in our small minds, as we read this and, and look at it, it's hard for us to distinguish uh, you from other angry rulers out there, like Thanos. It is, it's hard. And we need help this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to clearly perceive what you're communicating to us through this text. And we need your Holy Spirit to help us receive it as what it is. As a bread for our souls to help us find joy and safety in Jesus. So I pray that you would speak to us and help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, this text sounds 
like Thanos. I'm just going to destroy everyone. What is God up to? Last week when we looked at the previous passage that had a very similar tone to it, uh, we broke the passage up into three sections. It's going to be very similar this week. We'll do the same thing. We're going to look at God's wrath in this text. We're going to look at God's reasons for his wrath in this text. And then we're going to see something a little bit different, a little bit clearer picture of what God is up to. We're going to see God's remnant in this text. So we're going to see God's wrath his reasons, and his remnant in this text. And we'll define what remnant means in just a bit. So first, God's wrath. God here is personally involved in the destruction of nations around Israel. The nations around Israel are taunting them. They're tyrannizing them. They're ruling over them. They're afflicting them, and God is going to destroy them. And what you have here, then, is a listing of the nations around them. And, it, and the order is, well, this isn't the order. This is the only order I can keep in my brain without looking at my notes. North, south, east, and west. You get the compass around Israel. You get to the west. In verses 4 to 7, God is going to destroy the Philistines, Philistia. So along the sea coast, along the Mediterranean Sea, God is going to destroy all the nations of the Philistines. In verses 4 to 7, we can see there that that land not only was supposed to be Israel's, but now these people inhabit it, and they are going to be, you'll see there in verses 4 to 7, it's going to be deserted, it's going to be a desolation, the people are going to be uprooted, destroyed, and it says, it's got a weird saying there, it says that it's going to happen at noon, which is a weird statement. It's going to happen at noontime. Uh, theologians, when I was reading academics, quibble over what that means. Basically, it means it's most, it's going to happen in broad daylight. There's not, there's not going to be, they're just going to come. God doesn't have to surprise them. He's just going to come upon them and he's going to utterly destroy them. He doesn't need to involve any trickery or strategy. He's just going to come in the broad daylight and he's just going to take them out. But then not, that's to the east or to the west. Then to the east in verses 8 to 11, God is going to destroy Moab and Ammon. Now the Ammonites... And the Moabites in this passage, these are blood relatives of Israel. These are blood relatives of Israel who have, who have joined with other nations and, are tyr- and seek to tyrannize Israel and they seek to rebel against God. Uh, these are the ones that, if you remember in the, uh, in, in the Torah, in, in the first five books of the Bible, you have Balaam coming uh, to curse Israel. This is from these people. Balaam is from these people, Balak. And in the attempt to curse Israel, God steps in and causes him to bless them instead in the story. But here, they have continued their desire to curse God and to curse God's people, and they are going to be destroyed for it. So we have the west and the east, but we also have the south in verse 12. And verse 12 here is, is the shortest of the descriptions of the nations. It says, you also, O Cushites, that is to the south, south of Egypt in Africa, the Cushites, they shall be slain by my sword. And it's, what's interesting is this sharp contrast between 12 and 13. 
13 is, talked, is in the third person. God's going to do something. But 12 has something really personal going on here. God himself is going to strike the Cushites. There's a, there's a personal engagement of God. It's short, direct, and he is directly involved in destroying them. And then in verses 13 to 15, we see the north. We get to the north part of the compass in Assyria. Assyria is the mega power in this day. They're the big power. And this is where the city of Nineveh is. And Nineveh at that time was a powerful city. It was like New York City. All innovation, technology, rich, powerful, and a massive city. They were influential. And what we see here is similar to what we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, if you'll remember, God is going to do the reverse of creation. And he reversed the days of creation, showing that he's doing decreation and bringing his wrath. Here we see God say that a little bit differently. What we see in verses 14 and 15 is the creation taking dominion over them. In in Genesis chapter 1, God calls Adam and Eve to take dominion over the earth and to rule over the earth. This is why Adam can name the animals. He He is ruling over them and they're tending the garden. And all of a sudden here, God is saying, what I'm going to do to you, Assyria, is you are no longer going to have dominion over the earth. You are no longer going to be powerful. Instead, animals are going to rule over you. You will be beneath the animals. They will come and roost and dwell in your city, and you will, be, you will be gone. You'll be deserted. One theologian, one academic says it like this. He says, the creation seizes power from the greatest of human empires and transforms it into a bestial wilderness. Organized chaos has supplanted civilization. That's what's happening here. That the chaos of Genesis chapter 1 that God brought order to is now taken over and is ruling over this nation. So God is going to destroy the nations. He's just going to, it looks, I mean, it sounds like Thanos. He's going to flip his finger and they're all going to go. It sounds that way. But there's something more here. There's something something even more profound. We learned last week in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that the people were worshiping other gods. It says there that they were worshiping Milcom, one of the gods of these foreign nations. The people of Israel brought Milcom and brought Baal, another god, into their temple and were worshiping these gods in the temple. And what we find in verse 11 is that God is not simply interested in destroying the nations, but in destroying the gods of the nations. And so in verse 11, look at it again with me. He says there, the Lord will be awesome against them. And listen to this. He will famish all the gods of the earth, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. That word famish there in Hebrew, that's a word raza. And it makes to mean make lean. It means to essentially to starve someone to death. That the gods are going to be starved to death. They're going to experience a long, slow, painful death. They're going to wither, as one academic says, they will wither to nothing for lack of attention. They're just going to, they're just going to vanish in the night. They're going to starve to death. 
And what's interesting is that when you read some of the ancient um, cultic pagan practices of these gods, bales would be created and made these little wooden statues or golden statues, and they would be people would bow down and worship them. And one of the things that would happen is because these these idols would be taken out on procession around the city for people to bow down and worship to, and big parties would be had. These things would get knocked over, they'd get beat up, and these gods would eventually start to look, you know, get some wear and tear on them. And in these cultures, they had entire liturgies for how to properly bury and discard a god. Because the people at this time, well, in what we understand from the scriptures is that these gods are not just, they're not just pieces of wood that people think are gods. These are like demonic, real spiritual powers that are represented by these, by these physical objects. And so in order to retain the dignity of the spiritual deity that they were worshiping, the demon that they were worshiping, what they would do is they would show honor to the beat up relic and they would wrap it in cloths and they'd place it in a river and have a whole big beautiful ceremony of it passing on into the, the ether of the spiritual realm and a new idol would be brought in. And the reason I think that's important is because when we read this text, God is not honoring these idols. He is, he is doing... He's, you remember when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed and his body was pushed out into the sea and people were very upset with this because it was, uh, it was disrespectful to the Muslim faith to not receive a proper Muslim burial. And so he was pushed out. And so it was seen as a kind of offense that someone would do. That's what God is doing here to these gods. He's not just destroying them and starving them to death. He's shaming them by, by the way in which he is getting rid of them. He's showing them they're of no value and they are of no power, that he is totally over them. And what we find here, I believe, if we think carefully about this, is very similar to what we find in the book of Exodus regarding the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. It's very similar. The Egyptians and their Pharaoh tyrannized the people of Israel. They rebelled against God. And the ten plagues, all of them, were a sort of holy war by God through Moses on the gods of Egypt. They were all assaults on the gods of Egypt. And God raised Moses up to bring those plagues against them. And as he did, the, not only did God defeat each of those gods, but then God also defeated the army as they passed through the Red Sea together. This is a, there's a very similar imagery here going on between the Exodus and the book of Zephaniah. That God is not only interested in destroying nations, but the gods of those nations. And we see that happening in this, in this place. That the people of God are about to watch judgment fall on both the gods and the nations. So, the next question then. We see God's wrath. We see his, we see his judgment coming to bear. Why is he doing this? What is he doing? We need to know why God does this. We, looked at, we thought about this last week, and it's, it's very similar, and I don't want to repeat everything I said last week, but there's some relevance here. Osteosarcoma is a nasty cancer. It's a nasty cancer. I've seen it a lot in, in children. 
especially teenagers. And while it's rare, it affects, it affects some teenagers. It's a cancer of the bone. And most of the time, the affected bone has to be amputated and cut off. And if it's not removed from the body, the cancer is going to spread. It's going to go to other bones. It could go into the blood. It's a, it's a, it's a, nasty, it's a nasty cancer. Now, doctors, in light of that, they do the horrific. They do, the, they do something horrific. They take a child, and then they lop off a limb. They cut off that part of the body. In the cases I've seen, it's typically the lower legs. So usually it's like a femur bone, or they just amputate below the knee. Sometimes they try to put in like a steel rod in place of a bone. But they, but they end up having to literally just take a child and, and cut their limbs off. Now, none of us think a doctor is a tyrant for doing that. If anyone else was doing it, just you know, going and cutting off kids' legs, we'd be like, not only are they a tyrant, they need to be put in prison forever and maybe get the, get the chair or something, right? <laughs> but the reason we don't see a doctor that way is because the reason why they do it is just. It justifies the action. It, it makes sense of the action. We know that cancer is deadly. We know that a, a doctor is precise and qualified. We know that he's careful. We know that he's working for the life and for the flourishing of the child. We know all that. And so when we see a kid walking around with crutches because a, a leg has been amputated, we know that's happened for a good reason. We know, that that's hap- we know that's happened for their life and for their good. And the same, I would argue, is the case for the anger and wrath that God expresses in this text. God sees the, the cancer of sin. He sees the cancer of idolatry in the world. And he seeks to attack it. And the reasons why, because idolatry offends God. We talked about that last week. But it offends God because God created the world to flourish. We were created to image and worship him alone. And in worshiping him alone is paradise. That's, that's the picture of the Garden of Eden. Anything outside of that is death. And that's what the people are ushered into. That's what we are ushered into in sin is death. And that death is, comes from idolatry, from Eve, Adam and Eve and us with them preferring God over the thing, or preferring things over the person of God. And so like a good doctor, God hates agents of death. He hates cancer. And he seeks to destroy it where it is. But idolatry, as we learned last week, also corrupts human interaction. These gods demanded human sacrifice, and so they were sacrificing their children to these gods. They were using others as a means to get what they wanted, manipulative and hateful to others. It not only causes offense to God, but it causes, it causes and disrupts human flourishing and human relationships. This is the nature of idolatry. This is what the, the gods of the nations do. This is what Baal does. This is what the idols do. They cause offense to God and they cause disruption and disunity in human relationships. And we can see these things come out in the text. We can see them come out in verse 8. What are these nations doing who worship these gods? They are taunting the taunts of Moab, the revilings. Of, they are taunting God and they're taunt, reviling God's people. Israel was small. 
They didn't have power, influence. They weren't technologically advanced. There was nothing impressive about them. And Moab and Ammon knew they could just destroy them easily. And so they would taunt them and they would revile them for their weird rituals and weird laws and the fact that they they were only to worship God alone. In verse 10, we can see that they were filled with pride and taunted Israel again. And their pride is most manifest... Pride is most manifest in verse 15, where we are told that in, that the, man, this sounds a lot like America, at least it does in my mind. Nineveh, this powerful, technologically advanced society, what do they say in their heart? I am, and there is no one, no one else. I am is the name for God in the Old Testament. This is what, this is what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh who sent him. Tell him I am sent you. These people have made themselves God. And this is ultimately what idolatry does. Idolatry is a, is just a means to serve our own end, our own purposes, and to make a God of ourselves. The cancer that God sees in this text is pride. And pride is at the very center, it's at the very heart of idolatry. When Eve is in the garden and she sees the tree, sees the fruit of the tree, and to her it looks delicious. And she desired and deter- she not only desired to taste it, but she determined in her heart that she wanted to be like God. And she tried to, in a sense, as we do, become God and determine for ourselves what is good right and what how we our vision of flourishing and our vision of the good life rather than what God has defined for us pride exalts the self it exalts the self and this touches all of us Americans today we have our phrases you know the popular phrases be true to thine own self and it sounds like a biblical law right because it is a religious law It's a religious form of worship to ourselves. Or my favorite one, you've seen Nacho Libre if you haven't, you need to. There's a a great scene in there where Nacho, (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, (laughs) He looks at a little kid. (laughs) He says, I am the gatekeeper of my destiny and I will have my glory day in the hot sun. And we all like, yes, go Nacho. Right? Or the commercials on TV. These commercials crack me up every time I see them. They'll, uh, they'll roll through a, uh, a product, whatever. It may, be just, it may be something silly like chips. And at the end, they'll say, you deserve it. Right? This feeds into our exalted sense of self, our pride. Like, yes, I deserve it. Yes, my, my vision of the good life needs to be met. I am God and there is no other. And that seed not only lived in these pagan cultures, it also, it also lives in us. Pride is the basic denial that there is a distinction, a profound distinction between who God is as creator and who we are as creatures. And not only did these demons, these spiritual beings that took the form of idols, deny that distinction and try to rule in the place of God, we joined them in, in conspiracy against God for our own selves. God's wrath here is not just then about human corruption and human abuses of one another. 
It is, as uh, R.C. Sproul has said, a response to cosmic treason. To cosmic treason. Here we find a conspiracy between men and women and the gods of the nations attempting to overthrow the rule of God, eliminate him, and eliminate his people. That is what's happening here. And this is why God is not pleased and wants wants to bring it to an end. Because we see also in... In verse 11, that God wants, God wants all of the nations to worship him. That, that he, God wants the nations to worship him, not themselves, and not, not these idols. He wants to cause the nations. This, this is why in verse 11 it says, The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. He's saying he's going to destroy the gods, and now all the nations are going to worship him. And what's interesting here is the word lands there um, is actually better translated islands, which is interesting. And the point of that is that, in the writer's mind, is that islands are like the furthest reaches of the earth. The furthest reaches of the earth. Even out there on little tiny Hawaii, God wants to be worshipped. Not just here, but in all the little tiny specks of land. Every speck of land on earth will be ruled by the reign of God and the worship of him. He wants to rid the entire world, not just Jerusalem, but the whole world, the whole compass of sin, of idolatry, that will bring justice, grace, love, and the hope of new creation. So we have something of a holy war here. It's not just a holy war where like Israel's going to go out and kill people. It's God's war. God is going to take vengeance. He's going to take he's going to war against these nations because of their attempt to destroy him and his people. And in this way God is like a good surgeon. He's ready to douse the world in chemotherapy and surgically remove the cancer of idolatry, the cancer of sin. And we know that God is not a tyrant in doing this, not only because in doing this, he's delivering people from the tyranny of these gods, but he's also shown himself to be incredibly patient. The book of Isaiah warns of all of this a hundred years before this. God has shown utter patience, not only to Israel, but he's shown patience to the nations around Israel. He's been pleading with them, stop doing this, worship me. Do not escape, you know, to escape the tyranny and to stop tyrannizing others. But he not only shows himself patient, he also shows himself precise. Not one ounce of his wrath ends up in the wrong spot here. A good surgeon does not, if he's going for the foot, doesn't also take out the pelvis. Right? And what you see with Thanos is he's arbitrary. He just flips his thumb and it's just some random half of the universe is gone. With God, it's very precise. Only on people who deserve it. And only to the degree that they deserve it. It is perfectly just, perfectly precise, and accomplishes the perfect end for which he intends it. He is better than the best surgeon in exacting justice. He's better than the best surgeon in bringing life and flourishing to people. But you may say, well, why is God even telling us this? Why, why, do, why, does we, 
Why do we care what God is doing with the nations around Israel? Well, one you could say is most of us aren't Jewish, so hey, we should probably be aware of it, right? <laughs> but there are a couple reasons why God does this for the people of Israel here. First, he wants to, he, he wants to, he wants to promote their repentance. He wants, to, he wants them to see what God is going to do with the nations, and he wants this to excite in them a desire to get away from idolatry, to repent and to get the idols out of the temple and out of their lives. And this is what he wants it to do for us. Notice the four in verse four. The four in verse four. Verse four starts, for Gaza shall be deserted. That tells us that whatever is being said from this point on is based upon what comes before it. And what comes before it is the call to seek the Lord in verse three. To seek righteousness. That perhaps you might be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. He wants the people to see that if they pursue God, if they forsake their idols that they, that they, and repent, that they will perhaps find hope. And, and the reason for this is because we know in, verse, in chapter 1, and I didn't talk about this very much last week. I'm just going to talk about it for just one second. In verse 8, it says, The day of the Lord's sacrifice, I'll punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who array themselves in what? Foreign attire. The people of Israel didn't just take on the worship of other gods. They dressed like them. They assimilated themselves into a culture of tyranny. And the roots of it began to produce the fruits of that in in their culture and in their life. And God wants them to say, you need to pull away. Take off the attire. Get away from the gods of these other nations and and repent. So God is telling us this so that we would see him and his threats and be motivated and be energized to repent of it. But he also wants to inspire hope. Because as we said, Israel's small. They've assimilated. They've assimilated to these other cultures because they're afraid. And we talked about this quite a bit last week about why someone might worship an idol. Why would they dress like the Assyrians? Because they were afraid of the Assyrians. They didn't want to stick out. They wanted to go under the radar. They didn't want to be a cause for the Assyrians to look at them and try to try to take over them. And so they, they played nice. They played nice with the other nations because they trusted that if they did, they would be safe. But God wants to inspire hope that you don't have to play safe with other gods. You don't have to play safe with the nations. There's hope for Israel. There's real hope for Israel. There's hope for us not only to be delivered from our idolatry, but also to find safety and to find peace and flourishing. In the midst of a very difficult world. And so that leads us into our final point. God's remnant. What God is doing here in in pointing out a remnant should hopefully give us lots of hope as it was intended to for the people of Israel when they read this. As we said, God's justice is precise. It's only directed at the proud. But those who are humble seek him and forsake idols. We see here that God preserves them, and they are a kind of remnant. So to see this, we're going to walk through this carefully. In verse 3, 
You see that perhaps that we focused on last week. Perhaps may God deliver you in the day of his anger, which not a very strong hope. Like perhaps sounds like maybe it's not going to happen. And as we said, we th- I assume this is God being sarcastic with them. But what you see is that the perhaps actually manifests into real hope in verses 6 to 7. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds of flocks. And look there in verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of who? The remnant of the house of Judah. That Israel here has a hope that God might not just perhaps deliver them, but that they have a hope that they will actually experience being not only delivered from the judgment of God, but here being restored to their fortunes and walking into a kind of new creation. A remnant, it says. We don't use that word a lot, but with the surgeon illustration, we can make quick sense of it. When a surgeon cuts off a leg... That leg is discarded. The remnant is the rest of the body, right? And so when God brings his justice, he is going to cut out the cancer of sin and idolatry upon these people. But there's going to be a remnant. And that remnant is, the intention for preserving this remnant is that it would flourish and life would come. This is why we did as a nurse at the hospital with these kids with cancer, this is the whole reason we would lop the leg off to begin with. We want them to grow and flourish. We want them, we want their life to go on and to become even better than what it was before. And this is God's intention. This is his design. And this is what we see actually promised through this prophecy. That God is going to be mindful of them. He's not going to be careless in the way in which he administers his justice. He's going to be mindful of them and think of them. It says he's going to restore them. That they are going to make this part of the nation their own possession. Which if you look at chapter 1 and verse 13, it says that their houses are going to be laid waste. That they should build houses. And this is God talking to Israel. That their houses will be laid waste. Though they build houses, they should not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they should not drink wine from them. They're putting, God is saying, you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You don't even have to do the work. These folks already did it. You can go and you can live in it. I'm, gonna gi- I'm just going to give you their labor. Their labor is now yours. And you can go live in it and you can not only do that, but you also see in verse 7 that God is going to give them pastures and meadows which means they're going to be able to graze and lay down. They're going to be able to lay down at night, which has the, that they're at peace. You don't lay down at night if you're afraid. Many of us are sleepless at night because we're full of anxiety and stress. And the picture here is that of abundance and provision, of, of safety, of rest, that God is going to give these people Rest And verse 9, again, draws us back to the people of Israel as they come out of the, of the nation of Egypt. Verse 9 says they're going to plunder the people and they're going to possess them. That the people are going to plunder them. Just as the Egyptians, just as the Israelites plundered the Egyptians and taken all the silver and gold out of the cities they left. And then God, plund- and then God kills them in the sea. So now Israel is going to plunder their neighbors. 
And they're going to profit off of and experience blessing from God from all the riches of the nations around them. God's judgment came to Israel for the Egyptians through the Red Sea, and they walked through, they walked through on dry ground. And I think this is what God is pointing us to here. This is just reminding people of Israel, this is your second exodus is coming. Your second exodus is coming. I'm going to deliver you from the tyrants of these other gods. You're going to walk through on dry ground. And your kids are going to play while the waters of the wall are up around you. While you walk through. And you're going to party on the other side. Just like Israel did in Exodus chapter 15. That is what God is telling the people that he is going to do for them. God is going to usher them into pastures of peace and rest, and safety. And to be quite frank, this is just God saying, I'm going to usher you into a new Eden. I'm going to bring you into a new creation where you can finally, finally rest. And we sang that first song this morning. It was great, that line there, that the name of Jesus speaks to us in the midst of anxiety and depression and has the power to deliver us from that. And that is what is being promised here. That is what we see happening in this text. God is not in heaven as some tyrannical, angry Thanos with an inferiority complex just ready to pounce on us with the slightest infraction. He actually loves us. He loves us. He sends Jesus to make a remnant out of us and usher us into his joy that we might flourish. This is why God sent Jesus to us, to actually fulfill this text in the most fullest form. Sure, it was fulfilled, historically, in various ways, as these nations were destroyed. But it was fully fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus. Sending Jesus to us to fight the gods of the nations, to defeat sin, to defeat the devil, so that we could find safety in him and be delivered from the influence and the tyranny of devils and of idols. Jesus was taunted as Israel was here. In Matthew chapter 27, the people taunted him on the cross. He experienced the taunting here. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, that'll be up on the screen here. Colossians chapter 2, listen to what it says. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, there you go, Andrew, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our idolatry. God cancels it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen, he disarmed the rulers, the authorities. That word authorities there is actually, um, in Greek, is the word, part of kurios, which means it's a lord. So like lording gods over people's lives is the idea here. Rulers and authorities, and he puts them to what? Open shame. He, taunt, he shows them by triumphing over them in him. Jesus did this. He actually did it. On the cross, Jesus literally destroys the gods of the idols. He destroys the gods of the world. He destroys idolatry. And in the same breath and in the same work, he Defeat sin for you, your guilt. Because as we noted, as I've noted in this, 
We all share in this guilt. We all share in the guilt of idolatry, and Jesus here triumphs over it. And this week, you'll get to hear more about Jesus' defeat of that in the harrowing of hell, which I'm excited for because I know Andrew's going to delve deeper into that for us. So this is all leading into Wednesday, if you don't know. But know this, you are not just safe in Jesus, safe from tyranny. He has loved you. He has fought for you on the cross. And he's fighting to deliver you from the tyranny of Satan and the gods of this nation. In Christ, you not only have hope of overcoming the idols in your life, but to actually lay down, put your head on the pillow at night, and have peace with him. And this is what God has called you into in your relationship with Jesus. Whatever idols you struggle against today, whatever idols tyrannize you, God is determined to destroy them. There is hope for you. There is hope that you will overcome and that you will be at perfect peace with God in your life. He's not a tyrant. He is a surgeon saving us from demons, death, and sin. That's what he's doing. And he set his love upon his remnant and offers us life abundant through it. It's a beautiful, beautiful hope here. He saves us from the penalty of sin. And even more amazing, he gives us a new identity in Christ so that we no longer have to fear and think we need to strategize so assimilate with the sin and idols around us. But we can boldly look like Jesus and worship him and have, have no fear. So are you struggling with sin today? That's the question. Are there idols that seem to hold you captive? Jesus has defeated them. He is the warrior who's conquered over the gods in the battle on the cross. And in his resurrection from the dead, he gives you life and he gives you victory over them. They do not define you. The God who has liberated you He defines you. This means as you fight against the gods of this age, your efforts are not in vain. Even if it seems impossible. I can't can't count the number of guys who over the year, over the last just five years, have come to me and confessed uh, sexual immorality and addiction to pornography. And guys that confess it to me on a regular basis. And they feel hopeless. And they feel trapped. They're being tyrannized by it. Christ has defeated that God. And you are truly free. Truly free. Not only free from the penalty of sin, but free from the tyranny of that sin in Christ. And so that means we can press on. Press on and fight against it in the freedom that we have in Christ. Not fearing that our efforts are in vain. Not fearing that it will eventually overtake us. Knowing that in Christ, we have true victory because he has already fulfilled all of this for us on the cross. You don't fight against the gods alone. God has done it for you in the person of Christ. God has, in a sense, opened up the Red Sea for you like he did for Israel. He's defeated the gods of Egypt in your life, and in Jesus, you can walk through on dry ground safely. That is what he's calling you to. And though the gods pursue you, though they come calling and taunt you and tempt you, listen up. 
You're safe. They're defeated in the waters of God's judgment. That is the hope that's in this text. So church, you are safe in Jesus in the midst of God's judgment. We're safe in a world of idols and little gods. We're safe in Jesus as we fight our sin. And safety in Jesus means that we can rest. And as Cole declares, we can party harder than the kingdom of darkness together. And that, for me, is good enough. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in texts where you're calling fire down from heaven, that there is hope. Lord, that you have chosen to save a remnant, that you've chosen not to leave us under the tyranny of idols, which you could have done in your justice, but that you've chosen to send your son to love us and to deliver us and to give us hope that we can be victorious in Christ by faith. So I just pray, God, that you would just fill us with hope this morning and that you would energize us in our fight against sin together. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen. You think I'm long-winded? That dude's got me beat, big time.